Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray that you bless our study. Help us to focus. Help us to learn. Help us to take the scriptures seriously so we apply them to our lives. God, I pray that you would use this text to uh, provoke us to love and good deeds, that you would stir our hearts' affection towards Christ, that you would help us to stand firm, be steadfast in our faith. God, I pray that you would bless through this study. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. We are going to study... The book of Hebrews on Wednesday nights. I've been trying to come up with other topics, and the fact of the matter is I hate topics. And so it's like, I just want to do a book. And I said, well, why can't I just do a book? So we're going to do a book. That's what that came down to. And I like this book, and it's been a while since we talked through it. Anybody remember when we did Hebrews? Oh, yeah. You remember all this? You weren't here. No, but I was listening to the audio book. Uh, <laughs> audio book or sermon? Audio sermon. Since I don't have an audio book, I got, we'll go with sermons. Um, so we'll see how much has changed and evolved. Hebrews hasn't changed. Okay, so here's what I want to do, though, as we do this study. I want to use this study also as a means for teaching good Bible study practice. Does that make sense? So I want to be very um, formal, and here's how we're going to break down this text. Then let's break down the text. This is how we move from that to making it make sense in our lives. So if you can make sense of this week in, week out, and do this, you can go home and do this on your own and get the same thing from any book of the Bible. So that's that's the goal. So we're going to kind of do both studying this book, but also studying the way we study the book. Yeah, good. All right, so let's dive in. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews. Uh, a few trivial sort of things. Uh, Hebrews is not written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek. So just to make sure everybody knows that. It is in your New Testament. Here it is. Hebrews. Now you could look down at your paper and cheat, or you could just make eye contact. What should you always do first when you're reading your Bible? Let me read. What should you do first when you're studying the Bible? Better question. Do it. Prayer is a good thing to do with Bible study, but that's not what I'm getting at. Make, make coffee. coffee. <laughs> now, I would probably make coffee before I studied the Bible. It's true, but it's not the most important piece. When you want to learn what a book is saying, what do you need to do first? Read it. Read your forward. For what purpose? To know the purpose of the book. You need to know the context. You need context. That is always your first question. Any book of the Bible we're reading, you need to know the context. So the first question always, what is the context? First blank, no, no, well, first point, no blanks. Always learn the context when you're studying the book of the Bible. Always. So if you're trying to figure out what John says in chapter 8, you need to know about John. You need to know about the gospel. Why was it written? And we're going to walk through some of the specific key questions you need to ask Every time you study a book, so the context involves several components, we're going to highlight four of them. Number one is date. Anybody like dates? Not the fruit, but, uh, but the timing. What does date tell you? It gives you part of the setting. So knowing the date also involves understanding dates. So if you know something was... In A.D. rather than B.C., what does that tell you? It does very much denote Old or New Testament. If something's after 100 A.D., then you would know it was after even the New Testament. 
right? But understanding a date also helps you place that story in the grand story. No book of scripture just stands alone, isolated. It's part of God's big story from beginning to end, from creation to recreation. Where does this book fall in that redemptive story? Where does it fall from the prophecy that the one would come who would crush the serpent to the exaltation of Christ? Where does it fall along that narrative? Is it after all of that, which is what will be the case with Hebrews? Is it in the early church period? How does that change how we read the book? That changes everything. So always ask that question. What is the date? And if you have a study Bible, you'll you'll have this information in there. Next, um, you should know that blank just from reading the question. Who's the author? Now, the Sunday school answer to who's the author is always what? God is the author. That is indeed the case. We need to keep that in view. That's not what we're talking about here. Why does it matter that we know who wrote the book, or as much as possible, know who wrote the book? Kind of know how they're looking at things. Okay. What else? Author, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Well, it's there's nothing wrong with having that credibility, though. I mean, we could talk about arguments for God's existence, and as you know, as awesome as they are, none of them are the reason you believe in God. But knowing those arguments for God's existence can reinforce and strengthen your belief in God. But nobody comes to faith through them. You understand the difference? So there's a lot of things here in Scripture that. You know, we may already believe the authority, we may already trust it, but knowing how it comes together and knowing the historical reality of the person writing this down and their experience does help reinforce the trustworthiness and even our relation to the passage. A human being wrote this down who had an experience. Take, take Luke and John and you could just take a section of the Greek language, even in English really you could do this and you could tell the difference between their writing styles from one paragraph they think differently, they, they relate to God differently, there's advantages to knowing different people work with God in different ways throughout the Bible because it shows the diversity of scripture That's true. I get asked for where should I start reading questions all the time, and I do Kate Tater, Tater, <laughs> Taylor, the answer to to what I know about the person. So that that's a valid point. I hadn't thought about that. Number three, super important, audience. Who is this book written to? So of course, like when we're studying something like First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, knowing what's going on in Corinth. It's absolutely fundamental to understanding. There's parts of that book that would not make sense if we didn't have an idea of what was going on in Corinth. Then there's books like Ephesians, where the local setting in Ephesus is completely irrelevant, but the historical setting of Jewish versus Gentile Christianity in general in that world is the audience. And knowing that audience and their struggles helps you interpret the book. You 
always need to know that. So if you're if you're studying the book, you need to be able to ask these questions and know the answer. Who wrote this book? This guy wrote this book. When did this book get written? Probably during this period. Well, what period in God's redemptive history is that? Know that. Who did this book get written to? If you know the answer to those three questions, you are well on your way. And number four, the situation. Another way to say that is why did somebody sit down and write this book? Or we can say, well, God led them to. Yes, sure. But that's usually not the direct reason. That's what God was doing in the background, leading them to the point where they wrote this book. But for them, they wrote this book for a particular reason. Did the Spirit inspire Paul to write 2 Corinthians? Well, certainly. But why was the direct reason Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, if you've been here on Sundays? What's he doing? He's defending himself. He's got a historical situation that he's operating in. There were people in that church who were against him, and they've repented, and now they're open to hearing a letter from him, so he writes this letter to defend his position. He's got a historical setting that makes him write this letter. So what historical event caused this thing to be written? And you can do that with any book, so we're going to now walk through those four questions with the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews, here we go. Context of Hebrews. Date. So here is a significant uh, New Testament era event that we need to understand. Pre or post destruction of very important building. Anybody want to take a guess? The temple. Right, the temple is not in Jerusalem right now. If you go there right now, what would you find? The foundation. Well, there, there is a foundation wall in one corner, yeah, but uh, it's a mosque. Yeah, it's a mosque. It's called the Dome on the Rock, isn't it? Yeah. So that's what you would find there now. How long has it been since the temple in the Old Testament sense has stood in that location? A.D. 70, right? A.D. 70 is the year it was destroyed by who would eventually become Emperor Titus. He's the general at this point, but he, he will be the emperor. He destroys the temple. Anybody know why he would want to do something like that? Because Jesus did predict this event, quite literally. Um, we could say that's why he did it, but that was not his immediate reason for doing it. The humiliation of the Jewish people. Why would he want to humiliate the Jewish people? They're revolting. They were trying to. When you said revolting, I did not I think of like revolt. I, I thought of like repulsive. That's just revolting. To me. They were the, the Jewish people were trying to revolt. They were trying to rebel and overthrow Roman power, and it goes very poorly. Uh, they lose very badly, and to make a show of might, Rome destroys the temple. So this is a point of timing. AD 70, so we date things in the New Testament, basically, based on whether or not they were written before or after this happened. Well, one obvious way to date something on this would be if it references the destruction of the temple, well, then it would obviously fall after. And so this is the big question with the book of Hebrews. So I'm, I'm getting into the context a little bit here, but who do you think Hebrews was written to? Just if you were going to take a stab in the dark. Hebrew people, right? The Jewish people. And if you think about Acts, the book of Acts, what is the church predominantly made of? 
Jews or Gentiles? It depends, right? So from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, that answer changes. First nine-ish chapters, almost ten chapters, it's like exclusively Jewish. By Acts 28, there's probably considerably more Gentiles who are Christians than who are Jewish. You follow what I'm saying? So, to write a book to just one particular group of Christians called to the Hebrews, that presupposes maybe where this book is going to fall on that scale. Where do you think? Probably before. Why write it to the Hebrews when the church is mostly Gentile? I mean, now, there's arguments for it, but... Um, most people would say Revelation, um, maybe First, Second, Third John, but uh, some people put Hebrews after the destruction of the temple, but uh, most don't. Most most don't. But that's the question we're asking. So Hebrews does not mention the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and because of what Hebrews is talking about, that's like a dead giveaway that it had not happened yet when the book was written. Because the author is trying to prove that the Old Testament system is not good enough. Well, what better way than to say, see, God destroyed the temple. Clearly, our way is better. Never makes any kind of argument like that. So, it's presumed then that Hebrews was probably written before the destruction of the temple. So, persecution has not reached its high point yet, but it's well on its way. So, who wrote the book of Hebrews? That is the great mystery. So, many early church fathers believed Paul wrote it. Anybody have a King James Bible? With them? By any chance? How dare you bring that in? No. (laughs) The uh, King James Bible actually calls this, I think it's the King James, or at least some older term, the Vulgate maybe, um, Paul's letter to the Hebrews. Early church almost exclusively considered this a Pauline letter. But what's fascinating about that, does anybody know why Paul's letters are ordered the way they are in your New Testament? Have you ever asked that question or wondered? What's the first one? Romans. What's the last one? Philemon. Philemon, however you want to say it, I don't know. Um, What's the difference between Romans and Philemon? Length. Literally, they're listed in length order interesting. But then what comes after that? Hebrews. Where would Hebrews fall lengthwise? Not last, right? So even though many early church fathers claim Paul wrote this, uh, the people putting the canon together, actually putting the books of the Bible in order on parchment and on manuscripts and in codexes, did they actually think Paul wrote it? Best they weren't sure about it. They weren't sure. They weren't sure enough to put it in order. So it got put in the end. But Paul says, I, Paul, wrote all these other letters. Right? It doesn't fit Paul at all. So let's the next part. So many other names have been suggested. So, of course, historically, one of the biggest names is Apollos, who is mentioned as being someone competent in the scriptures before he understood the New Testament, which would make him particularly competent in the Old Testament which does give him pretty good qualifications to be the author of Hebrews. Um, But the letter 
doesn't name its author and is written in a very different style than Paul. It's not how Paul writes. Theologically, it's perfectly in agreement with Paul. It does sound like stuff Paul would say, just not the way Paul would say it. Was it like Apollos, one of his protégés, though? Apollos' companion, by the end. I mean, there was a little tension at one point, but they they did reconcile well later. But uh, it's interesting that it's not named, and it's probably because of the persecution. That's part of the context. And so they're avoiding saying who wrote the letter. But there are a lot of arguments for Paul, and I'm not going to try to prove one way or the other. But uh, James? Yeah. I've never heard James argued for, but I don't know. I mean, hypothetically, anyone who could write in the first century and knew Jesus is on the table. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, um, here's one of the best arguments for Paul, though. Most everything Paul wrote was a letter, right? Have you ever written a letter? Or let's just use modern language. Have you ever written a text message or a email? Okay, do you change your grammar style between text message and email? Yeah. Yes. Most of you do. What about if you were typing a paper for a class? <laughs> What's different? One is formal, one is going to be grammatically correct, the other is, well, at least close, right? As long as you're just throwing it out there. Well, Paul's letters are run-on sentences, and oftentimes poor grammar. Sometimes subject-verb agreement is wrong. Like, he's just, it's, it's like we write emails. Hebrews, however, is the most polished New Testament Greek in the New Testament. It's perfect. It's precise. It's it's Greek perfect. It's not English perfect. It's in Greek, what they considered in the Greek world good Greek writing. That's what Hebrews is. So I think the best argument that Paul wrote it is that, well, one is a, well, he wrote a book to be published, and the other he's writing letters. And of course, they like would he be didn't know how to write properly. Oh, he no, he, he's, he's like PhD in that yeah. world. Oh, yeah, super educated guy. I don't think he wrote it, but I do think that's a pretty legit argument, so I don't know. Either way, it's whoever wrote it knew their stuff very well. Um, Probably the best Old Testament um, teaching in the New Testament period. This is really good material. All right, so audience, Jewish Christians. You can see this several times, just giving you one example here in the first one. The author says, our fathers, our fathers, talking about the Old Testament fathers. Very common lingo if you're Jewish, not as common if you're Gentile, not yet. And then second, the letter assumes vast knowledge of the Old Testament, vast. It's like he's, he assumes you know these stories, you grew up with these stories. Is preaching to the choir. You know what's going on. Many of us hopefully do know, but probably not as well as these Jewish people who heard it originally. I'll talk about the situation. Jewish persecution. So, just think about the book of Acts for a moment. And you think through the first, specifically first, at least through chapter 15, when Christians are persecuted, who's doing the persecution? Yeah, it's Jews persecuting Jewish Christians. What do they want those Jewish Christians to do? 
renounce Jesus and therefore do what? Turn back to Judaism. That's the context of this book. Is Jewish persecution was really bad. Now, if this book is written early enough, who's leading the persecution? Paul. Paul would be. So it's probably later than that. But hypothetically, hypothetically, someone's writing this book while Paul is leading a very powerful Jewish persecution against Christians. At the very least, that happened. Strong persecution by Jews against Jewish Christians. What's particularly difficult about that kind of persecution compared to Roman persecution? Let's flesh that out a little bit. Yeah. It's at home. You don't bunker down and hope the Romans don't knock on your door. Because the guy persecuting you might sleep in your bed. Might be one of your kids. Might be grandma. Might be dad. Might be all your neighbors. It's a particularly powerful form of persecution. Where do we see a lot of this today? What culture? Islam persecuting Jewish, I mean, Christian converts. Same sort of thing. It's an absolute um, betrayal of family to come to faith in Christ. In that culture, it wasn't theirs as well. So Hebrews, because that's its context, you'll see this come up all over the place. You need to know that as you're reading Hebrews. Hebrews warns against apostasy. It's one of its favorite topics. What's a, ooh, is that a, is that a mess? I have no idea. Apostasy. How's that spelled? Yeah, turning away. So what what would apostasy be in this context? So you were following Jesus, and now you say, nope, let's go back to Moses. That's apostasy. Uh, Do you think Hebrews has a positive or negative view on apostasy? Incredibly negative. Incredibly negative. To apostatize is to burn in hell, we could say. There's, There's no gray area, really, in Hebrews. This is not okay. Um, To leave Jesus is a big deal. Chapter 6, we'll go into that a good bit when we get there. So much so that to really do that is a one-way direction. It's uh, You can't come back. And so we'll we'll unpack exactly what that means when we get to chapter 6. But apostasy is a very big deal. Then Hebrews encourages endurance. Why would it need to encourage endurance? being persecuted. That is the point. People are literally persecuting them. They're literally getting kicked out of their homes. They're literally um, being, in some cases, killed. They're literally being kicked out of town. And he's saying, endure it. Endure this suffering. So we'll see a lot of passages about endurance in the book of Hebrews. And then finally, Hebrews points to reward and the new creation. And we get a whole chapter on that, chapter 11. It's usually called the Hall of Faith. We'll see it's really a chapter about people who hope in the resurrection. All right, so that's our context. Now we're going to dive into two and a half verses. Slow down. Slow down, sorry. do this. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1. Long ago. When do you think that is? Uh, long ago. 
Jesus. No, that is not the answer. Long ago. Think, when was Hebrews written? It was written long ago. But while it's being written, he's saying long ago. So in, let's say, 60s. We know it's before 70s AD. Before 70 AD. So let's say it's 60s, hypothetically. Long ago is what to that writer? Old Testament. That's a direct reference to the Old Testament. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. And our fathers here would specifically be a reference to what? In this case, well, yeah, yeah, okay, they would be included in this. It's a little broader in this case than that. Anybody who taught. Really, it's the ancestors, yeah. So in other words, the Jewish people. So long ago, at many ways and many times, God spoke to our fathers by whom? So God's over here, and then he's speaking by who? Prophets. Prophets. Make sure we're on the same page. What is a prophet? It's a messenger. That is the only qualification to be a prophet. Is God says something and you say it. That's it. Are some prophets like Moses did really awesome miraculous things. Some prophets like Jonah had miraculous things happen to them. Alright, is then he got swallowed by a well. Um, some prophets like Elijah in that awesome things category. Not all prophets are like that. What do we know about Malachi? <clears throat> Just has a message. Has a message to share. So not all the prophets are Moses and Elijah. But the main thing that all the prophets are is God speaking to our fathers. And did he do this in one way? What to say specifically he did this in what kind of ways? Well, many. All right, so I gave you a couple examples, Moses and Elijah. What else? Give me some specific ways God spoke in the Old Testament. Angels. Burning bush. Through a donkey. Literally, Numbers chapter 23. I'm glad you said donkey. Luther would have said something else. Um, Context. What else? A still small, still, what? Through kings. David is a great example. Solomon, another example. Um, Dreams. Joseph. Remember, Joseph had dreams. And then think about the book of Esther. Where's a prophetic word in there? Yeah. It's kind of in the background. There's no direct reference to God speaking at all in that book. But he's orchestrating. So God's speaking not just through people, but even through events. He's doing different things. He spoke through the plex to, to Pharaoh. He spoke in a lot of different ways, many different ways, through prophets, to our fathers. Now, how big a deal do you think that is to the Jewish people? Part of what makes them who they are. It is what makes them who they are. This, this is their cultural identity. To say this with a group of Jews 2,000 years ago was to say, you're Jewish. That's the same thing as saying, long ago God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Because you're, you're the Jewish people. That's what we are. That's what he was telling them. 
Then verse 2, but, what's but imply? We're going to have a different channel. Change. But, in these last days, so this was, let me see how I can do this. So this strategy was long ago. And then this strategy is going to be last days. So what are the last days if we're just reading this passage? Since Jesus' birth. Since Jesus' birth. Really, last days in this sense is past. It's not forward. This is in past time. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his this is the Sunday school answer. Son. Son. Oh, I said Jesus. Sorry. Son. Now he's spoken to us by his son. But who's he spoken to? Everybody. Everyone, but it was still initially who, who Jesus came come to talk to. He did his work among Israel. Went until the Gentiles, went until Paul and the, the later Christians that he went to the Gentiles. So technically it's still the same target. So God formally spoke through prophets to the fathers. Now he's spoken to us by his son in these last days. Now why do you think he's going to set up the book this way? Remember his setting. They're experiencing severe persecution from their family, from their nation, from their brothers and sisters, from their own tribe, their own people group, saying, quit that Jesus stuff, go back to Moses. Why well, set the book up this way? So they'll understand the Messiah. He's comparing sources. See what he's saying? So is, is he going to argue that the son does a better job profiting than the prophets do? He does a much better job than the prophets do profiting. Pro- pro- prophesying. Yeah, there's a word. <laughs> prophesying. Okay. Not only that, though, but if those persecuting, they're going to appeal to that Old Testament word. Yeah. Versus he's giving them, here, remember, here's your other option, Mm -hmm. and he's better. What's fascinating, though, the book of Hebrews quotes what? All the time. You can't go a paragraph without quoting this. This. What does the book of Hebrews see as authoritative? Cool. The Old Testament, not in any sense is the book of Hebrews downgrading the authority of the Old Testament. It's quoting the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is better than the Old Testament. So he's not downplaying the authority. He's really saying that the Old Testament's authority actually rested on a bigger foundation stone, which was Jesus. And so he's going to use that to say, hey, look, the whole time this thing was sitting on this one. There was never a time where this stuff wasn't true. The Old Testament was always designed to rest upon this notion that Jesus is better. So in the old times, he spoke through the prophets. In these new times, he speaks through Christ. So to fill in those blanks, God has spoken decisively in two ways, through the prophets and through Christ. The prophets are the messengers of the former age, and Christ is the messenger of the what age? That would work. I was going with last. 
Church would also be true. But last is the word I'm going for. Last age. None of those are wrong. Okay, now let's read the first half of verse 3. And the reason we're doing the first half is because I want to be very clear about how the doctrine of the Trinity and specifically Christology is going to come in to Hebrews. And if we go any further than verse 3, there's no hope of descending on time. So, here we go. Let's read the first half of verse 3. He, and that's a reference to who? Jesus. Jesus, the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, all of that is a reference to who? Jesus, Jesus the Son. All right, so let's think about theology proper for just a second. If you don't know that expression, technically, anytime we talk about the Bible, theology, in any sense, the word theology just means that religious stuff we believe. Theology proper means the study of God himself. So let's talk about theology proper for just a moment. Now, some of these you should absolutely remember. Um, how many gods do we believe in? One. one. So one of the most important tenets of Christianity is that we are monotheistic. Now, we went over a few things that monotheism requires. Anybody remember what those are? To be monotheistic also meant you had to believe some other things. A singular? Okay, well, so we could say the oneness. Okay. We also said that it meant he was creator. As In other words, he's not created, which is actually already saying something else. He was, he's absolute. Okay, so there's just some things we, things we said about God before. Now, let me ask some questions that get a little more complicated. All right, so think hard. Where is God? <laughs> Somebody said in heaven in the back. That's a biblically safe answer. It's not the one I'm going for. He's everywhere. Everywhere in what way? I mean... Is he spread out throughout all of creation? No. So think about that. So we're saying God is here. And God is here. What part of God is here and what part of God is there? All right, so God is, all of God is here. Every bit. And every bit is over here. Of it is an encompassing aspect. Encompassing aspect. So, and what is God made of? God is spirit. When we say the word spirit, and this is particularly when the Bible uses the word spirit, what is it really getting at? Yeah, it's a negative word. It's technically not a positive word. We mean nobody. That's really what we mean when we say spirit. No body. So, does God have a body? Well, well, we're not talking about the incarnation. We're talking about the deity of God himself. Does he have a body? No, right? So can you see him? 
Can't be seen. There's nothing to see. You can't see God. Will we ever see God? No, not in his true self. No. People see God in the Old Testament because he does what? He manifests himself. When he manifests himself, is that manifestation omnipresent? No. When God's people saw the cloud of glory descend on the temple, was that cloud everywhere or was it only at the temple? Was it only at the tabernacle? When Moses got the Ten Commandments, was God's manifestation only on the mountain? It's only on the mountain. And that's not God. It's a manifestation of God. God's showing himself in some way, but you're not seeing actual God. Because you can't see God. He's not seeable. In fact, to see God would deny God's omnipresence. Think about that. You can't see something unless it can be contained. God cannot be seen. All right. But that's not what Hebrews is saying. What did it say? Jesus is the what? The radiance of the glory of God. Now, what is the radiance? What, what do we mean by that, you think? The light. Yeah. So if you think about the Old Testament concept of God's presence, it is the usual image. So you can't see that. Not really. You can't see the spirit. But what comes out of the cloud that they see descend on Mount Sinai, on the tabernacle, and on the temple? What's coming out? Radiance, technically glory. Light. There's this presence radiating out of it. That's the part you see, because you can't actually see God. But you can see some manifestation of God. What is that we're seeing in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2? What do we see? Sunday school answer. That's Jesus. It's our way to see God. That's Jesus. He is the revelation of God himself. Now, several things are going to happen as we go through Hebrews. And unfortunately, the author of Hebrews is never going to directly say it, but he's going to operate within a very precise theological system. And if you know that system, it'll make sense. Every time he says something, you'll go, oh, that goes here. He says something else, oh, that works here. And if you don't know the system, you'll look at Hebrews and go, this doesn't make any sense. seems to contradict itself. And what this verse... Jesus has always been God, and that verse, he hasn't always been God. And this verse, he's always had glory, and that verse, he's got glory he didn't have before. How is this possible? Right, you should already know part of the answer to the question. Um, what do you think it is? <laughs> Everybody's scared to guess. It was incarnated. Incarnate. Okay. So you remember we talked about... Four, so this is God, and then even our illustration is technically broken because God can't be contained to a circle. So forgive, forgive me here. Within God, there are three related beings. That's all we mean by the Trinity, not three different persons in the way we use the word person. It's not three different wills, not three different minds, not three different personalities, even the way we mean the word personality, just three different relations. 
The Father's related to the Son, the Son's related to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Father, and the Son and the Father to the Spirit at the same time. There's just three different relationships. That's as good as we can do. That's what we mean by the Trinity. One God within these three different relationships. Not all of them, though, are the radiance of the glory of God. Which one is? That is how Jesus became past tense, punctiliar, at a point in history, Jesus became a human being. So was he a human being the day before? No. And then he was. That is an insane, glorious truth of Christianity. The God of the universe became flesh. So in the old days, in the former times, how did God speak? Through prophets. How is God going to speak in the New Testament era? Through a human named Jesus Christ. Through a human being. This human being is not God in human form. He's God and human form. You hear the difference? So, the flesh of Jesus, is it omnipotent? No, not technically. Is it omnipresent? No. no. Can it get injured? Can it die? Yes. Clearly, that's, that's the gospel. Um, but can God die or be injured? Or, yes. you know, so, Jesus is the place where those two things are true at the same time. I know they were playing something. Where are we at? Jesus. Right, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God because he is God in the flesh. So think about how Hebrews words it. Not only is he the radiance of the glory of God, he is the exact what? Imprint of his nature. You take this concept of God and you make it seeable, you get Jesus. Because it's not seeable. But you take it and you reveal it perfectly in a perfectly seeable way, that's the incarnation. That's Jesus Christ in the flesh. All right? And then let's do let's talk about the incarnation. So we said there is one God who eternally exists in tri-personal relationship with himself. Tri-personal. Tri-personal. That, that's this. Tri-personal. And rather than try personal, what do we usually say? Trinity. Yes, which means try unity. One being, try personal, try unity, trinity. Okay. Last point here, and then I want to give some examples of it. Because the second person, which is the son, literally, now the word literally, what does that word mean? We misuse this word all the time. So, could I literally eat a horse? Only <laughs> no. if a story was written about you. <laughs> that would be like literally eating a horse. I mean, maybe I could literally eat a horse over a month period of time. Baby horse. I could literally. Now, baby, have you seen a baby horse? They're still crazy big. You can eat a whole baby horse. You can never eat a whole horse. You can't literally eat a horse. To literally eat a horse would mean you did what? And every morsel of that horse 
went into your flesh and you consumed it, right? That would be literally eating a horse, right? But I am saying here, literally, in the proper sense. People say literally all the time, and they just mean, like, dude, this is a big deal. And that, like, literally was like a mountain. Okay, no, it wasn't. It was figuratively. I mean here, the proper grammatical usage of this term. It says the second person, Jesus, literally became a man and is now truly God and truly man at the same time. So is Jesus a human being with all of its limitations? Yes. Save sin? Yes. He is a human being. All right, so with that in mind, I want you to see this. Look down at verse 4. This is after Jesus did the, the work of the crucifixion and resurrection. It says, he became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So just based on that verse, did Jesus have that name before? According to this verse. It says he became superior to angels. See what it's saying? How could he inherit a name? that he did not have before. How's that work? Did Jesus, in the flesh, have that name in the Old Testament? No. He did not. So we're going to get to see, as we walk through the book of Hebrews, things that happened to the human of Jesus that could not happen to the God of Jesus. Did this part die on the cross. Nor did it raise from the dead. This part did. So we're going to see when we work through Hebrews, we're going to see this concept of Christology, that's our fancy term, our doctrine of Christ, how all of this comes together, and we're going to see that Hebrews is going to seamlessly jump between the two. He's eternal, but he became. He's always been, but he's got a new name. There's a back and forth constantly in Hebrews. If you don't know the theology behind it, you're going to think whoever wrote Hebrews has lost his mind. He hasn't. He's operating from a very clean theological system that has been the theology of Christianity for 2,000 years. This has not morphed and evolved over time. You'll see Hebrews walking with it seamlessly, and we will see that over and over and over again as the book progresses. And then always, when we look at this, and this is how we'll end, we've got a few minutes, we want to make gospel application to our lives when we read the scriptures. It'll be a lot easier when we read Hebrews, because Hebrews is basically always applying the gospel, the work of Christ, to us personally. But where's the gospel in the passage we've read tonight? What's the main idea? What's the gospel in these two and a half verses? That the son did what? He perfectly revealed the father to us. Meaning we can what? Can you know God? Yes. You can know God in a meaningful, exactly correct way. But there's only one way you can know him. And it's not through prophets. It's not through other stuff. It's specifically through a person. Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus can say, if you want to know the, know the Father, 
What do you do? You know the Son. That's what the Gospel's trying to do. is reveal God in exact accuracy and perfection to us. So there's a hope here. There's an encouragement here. You can know God perfectly. Not fully, different concept, but you can know God truly through the person of Jesus Christ himself. That's the glorious truth of Hebrews that will be expounded um, super elaborately as we go. That's what we're doing. All right, any questions? A couple minutes. We're actually a couple minutes early, so. Go ahead and ask you. You had a question, Faith. No, you didn't? <laughs> okay. Anything? Anything at all? That was the content okay. of what he's speaking, yes. So that's directly from Moses, and it will be the subject of much of Hebrews, will be the things Moses taught and said. So yes, that's part of it. It's the content more than the means, if that makes sense. It's almost the same thing, though. Okay, anything else? All right, any specific prayer requests for tonight?